This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. What if I told you we could combine your love for premium cable with your dependence on online shopping? I bet you'd go pretty crazy. Well, time to go fucking nuts, because now we can. An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is back and I, I've been enjoying. I think it's doing okay. I think, I think some older episodes are better, but this is certainly still good. I love Curb. Uh, <laughs> I like how I put my review of Curb into this HBO on Amazon ad. They actually... Curb filmed right outside my apartment in L.A. like seven months ago, so I can't wait to see the outside of my apartment in the show. Uh, you know, this should be an ad for Curb. I wouldn't have said it was okay. I would have said it. Anyway, Amazon is offering a free seven-day trial for HBO, and you can get it by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just $14.99 a month. That's a good deal for HBO. My parents pay for HBO, and I assume they're paying more than that. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO, which is brought to you by Amazon. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing... Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson, and we've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardlockaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like we normally would, and I get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Matt Kleinman, former head video writer of The Onion, part of the team that brought back Sketchgram to UCB New York, and writer for Problematic with Moshe Kasher. Matt just recently created this joke writing app through Funnier Die called Pitch, which allows comedy writers to write and sell jokes. So we talk a lot about that near the end. I've uh, been on the app myself for the past uh, two or three weeks. It's really cool. It's really interesting. And uh, yeah, listen in to hear more about that. We also have a really interesting discussion on digital comedy, specifically how places like Facebook are ruining it. So uh, listen to this before President Mark Zuckerberg makes this episode disappear in 2021. Um, but yeah, it's a good episode. <laughs> Just a weird joke to put in there. So here is Matt Kleinman. Uh, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, where are you uh, from originally? Originally, I'm from San Diego, California. Okay, nice. Yeah. The, the zoo? <laughs> I've, I've been to the zoo, yeah. Uh, oh boy, I'm going to start this right off with it. My biggest lifelong controversy. I worked at SeaWorld, actually. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah, but I mean, I swear to God, before I knew, before any of that stuff, uh, growing up in San Diego, you just love and revere SeaWorld. And uh, my job, uh, f- like between freshman and sophomore year of college, I came home and worked at SeaWorld as an educator, uh, spreading lies and propaganda, I, I, apparently. Jeez. Yeah, isn't that rough? That's crazy. Yeah, isn't that a rough way to start this podcast, uh, too? Yeah. <laughs> Sh- Shamu was in, is in Orlando, or is he... Uh, Shamu is all of them. They oh, is, Shamu <laughs> is the, the slave performer name. They give them all when they're uh, out in the pool in front of people. There, you know, there could be three Shamus at once, uh, or unless there's a baby Shamu. They will every every once in a while mention their actual names, but Shamu is the stage name. Wow. Yeah. Tilikum, that's the one yeah. from the uh, mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, 
So are you doing comedy <laughs> stuff back then too? Uh, not uh, not really until college. Uh, probably I I uh, yeah. I mean I loved comedy. I was really into it, but I never did that much performance or, or anything like that until uh, till college. Uh, so but what what kind of stuff were you watching back then? Um, I guess I was big, you know, SNL, especially like classic SNLs, because I couldn't stay up late for the the real ones, but they played the reruns on like E, I think. (laughs) I used to play them on like E and like Comedy Central. Uh, I remember I would come home every day and watch uh, an episode of SNL on Comedy Central, which I think was followed by an episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, I think that was like, and I was, you know, I would defer my homework or whatever until I could watch that. Uh, the common theme in this podcast is Comedy Central reruns from like yeah. 2000, like early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. That's because they, they used to have like the best reruns. I remember as a kid, when I was like a little kid, and there'd be like Conan O'Brien every day at 6 p.m. Uh, kids in the Hall. I think they yeah. had a ton of Kids in the Hall. Yeah, no, Comedy Central was great. I mean, and then of course you had the classics, uh, Don't Forget My Toothbrush and Make Me Laugh. <laughs> Don't Forget My Toothbrush. <laughs> Don't Forget Your Toothbrush. It was like a comedy game show. Where if you won, I don't even remember how comedy was involved at all, but if you won, they just stuck you on a plane and sent you somewhere. At least that was the conceit. (laughs) So it was like, don't forget your toothbrush. So people came to the audience with like luggage. (laughs) That's so strange. It's just really funny. Uh, Yeah. I mean, who knows how real that was or whatever, but that was the, you know, Comedy Central, they were finding what they were, I guess. I was like a low budget cable network. But yeah. Isn't that funny? Uh, but they, uh, but yeah, so that Simpsons obviously uh, it was huge. South Park when that came on the scene, blew every thirteen-year-old's mind. Yeah. Uh, and then when I found when adults when I found like Adult Swim, Aqua Teen Hunger Force was like a huge. Uh, I feel like when I was like sixteen or seventeen or something, and found Aqua Teen, I became obsessed with Aqua Teen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where did you go to college? Uh, Haverford College, which is a small liberal arts school outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's like a little Quaker school. Uh, but they had a, a, a sketch improv troupe called Lighted Fools that I was in. Oh. And that was my first introduction to doing comedy. Were, uh, were you guys, like, good? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Great, great. I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, we were, for, for being such a tiny school, Haverford had, like, a really good comedy scene. There were, like, two improv groups. There was, like, a long-form one, and then there was us, which did, like, short-form and long-form. But we also did sketch. I guess we tried to have it all. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we would do a couple shows a semester, uh, like two nights of the shows that would be packed. And I mean, we thought we were good. We cared about it way too much. I certainly cared about it way too much. <laughs> uh, what were you like, majoring in? Uh, geology and environmental science. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that's, I mean, the SeaWorld stuff. I was uh, big into marine biology in high school. Uh, growing up in San Diego, it's kind of easy to fall in love with the sea. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I was studying geology and like, uh, climate science and stuff like that, but, uh, all the while doing comedy stuff. Do you, did, does that like, uh, like looking back on it now, does that like in any way inform your comedy? Uh, I think so. I mean, I certainly like, there've definitely been periods of time, uh, when I was the guy who was called on to like write the science kind of sketch or something like that. And I've done some like science comedy type things. I've written a bunch of geology sketches. Uh, I've written a bunch of like ocean based sketches. If there's like a sketch with like a, a fish in it, people usually figure out it's me that wrote it. So yeah, I mean, I think having like a, a body of knowledge to draw upon for comedy, I think is always good. And I think science, everybody loves science. I love science. Uh, 
So on that sketch troupe, do you remember any like sketches that you wrote that were really uh, <laughs> really good, really bad maybe? Uh, I well, the one that I I guess I boy I mean we might, I might as well talk about the Sea World sketch. I did a Sea uh-huh. like my my first like smash hit sketch I guess or whatever like the one that I was I think it was probably like one of the first ones I even got into like a show. Uh, but that, uh, it was, um, it was, uh, it's interesting, like thinking back on the politics of it, but I think it, I think it's, it holds up, but it was, uh, a, a whale that was, uh, an orca that was in love with its trainer and the trainer would yeah. like, uh, you know, cause they were doing like insemination, artificial insemination stuff. So the trainer would like jerk off the whale, uh, every once in a while and the whale, was expected to breed with the other ones, but the whale was only had eyes for the trainer, and the other whales thought that the, the that whale was a freak. And then, like, it ends with like the trainer coming and doing it, and they share like a special moment where maybe the trainer also feels something wow. <laughs> while jerking off the whale. There is like a real um, science study, I think, where like they have like a they they had a house and they like half floated. You know, you know the story. I absolutely do. Yeah. And like the dolphin like fell like fell in love with the the woman. Yeah, yeah. It's, do you know the the ending of that story? They 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 killed the dolphin. I uh, kind of yeah. Well, it was because they shut down the. I mean, the guy, the main scientist whose name escapes me right now, he like got way into LSD and like kept mm-hmm. trying to like he would give the 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 dolphins LSD to try and communicate with them. He ultimately made like a. Um, Sort of, oh God, what was it called? It was, it was some kind of um, synth, like a synth yeah. instrument that like he thought could communicate oh, with dolphins. Really? This was like later. Yeah, he was like super into hippie stuff. He was like brilliant. And like, I'm all for psychedelic drugs, but you know, everything in moderation. Please be careful <laughs> out there if you guys are going to try and expand your mind. And uh, yeah, but eventually they closed down the house that they had like specially built to do that. And he ended up, the dolphin ended up basically in like a little compound, like basically a dolphin prison in Miami, I think. Uh, and and uh, they say that the dolphin died of loneliness. The dolphin killed itself. Right, or yeah. They found it suffocated in it because it like barely could even turn around in the little pool that they had stuck yeah. it in. That's rough. Yeah, it's a real sad, sad, <laughs> it's <a very> sad uh, <laughs> story. <laughs> uh, so after college, uh, did you move straight to New York? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, I uh, wanted to do stuff at UCB. So I uh, we would have like Herald teams and stuff come to my college and perform and give workshops and stuff. So it seemed like the cool the like the the cool move was to to try and uh, do stuff at UCB here in New York. Is that when it first came on your radar when people came to your college? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I guess I knew about the sketch show. The ske- I remember the sketch show being on on Comedy Central uh, and thinking that was pretty uh, funny, but not fully. I it, it did seem like. The the UCB sketch show like had a whole world associated with it. I don't know, which was weird. And then I guess learning that they had a theater and did stuff I thought was like, whoa, there is a whole world. So yeah. Uh, when you started taking classes, did you know it was something like you immediately liked? I mean, I guess you were already doing improv and sketch before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was, I've, I was so obsessed with fucking comedy and college and stuff. So I like read, I had like already read like all the threads on the improv resource center. I don't know if you yeah. guys know the improv resource center. Is that still I, something that people know? I've only about? vaguely heard of it. I had Will Hines, uh, oh. teacher back in LA. Oh, awesome. And yeah. He like would say, sometimes rarely post, like, did anyone remember this thread from the improv resource center? <laughs> 
yeah. Uh, yeah, there was so much great shit on there. Uh, and I remember just like reading that board when I was in college and like watching as much improv as like they had put on like very little improv was online and I tried to watch it all like TJ and Dave sets and shit. And, uh, but the idea of like game and that kind of stuff was something I really, uh, liked when I kind of learned about it in college and then, uh, going and getting to learn about it from the source I thought was awesome. Did you, uh, gravitate towards improv first and then later do sketch? Um, I maybe, I mean, kind of both at the same time, cause I did, uh, both in, in college and I, while I was doing, uh, the improv stuff at UCB, I was still like writing and I, that's when I had, I started like contributing to, uh, to the onion, to the onion news okay. network around the same time when I moved to New York. So I was kind of doing both. How, uh, how did, uh, how did that start for you? Uh, that was, they used, used to just be able to apply online. It was like, uh, they had like a little section of the website that was like, if you want to become a freelance contributor to the onion news network, and that was the videos, not the paper, uh, you could just submit something and then you wouldn't hear for like six months until they did a call for submissions and then you would do a packet. And I remember being in college, uh, living, I think I was living on campus the summer after I graduated uh, and I got the, like, you have one week to do this, like pa- right. headline packet and was like, fuck yes. Oh man. They do a similar thing now, uh, where they give you like three weeks and then you have this like crazy, it's the same, the crazy packet. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it's terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Were you, uh, always on the, the video side? Uh, at the Onion, yeah. Um, for the most part, that's where I I started. Uh, I was getting enough right around the video side, but there were time, there were like down periods when something wasn't happening on the video side of the Onion, and I was in various stages of employment with them or or uh, not with them or whatever. Like they shut down the video department for a while, and I contributed to the paper for a little bit during that time, and I contributed to their book, um, and so I did a little bit of that. But mostly, I've been I was on their video side. Oh, why'd they shut down the video side? Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Uh, the so I <laughs> I joined up at the Onion during kind of the Onion bubble. Uh, the Onion in New York. I mean, it was it was awesome. But they had just gotten two TV shows: one on Comedy Central, one on IFC, and they needed a new staff writer for their uh, digital for like the Onion News Network web videos. Uh, and that was when I, uh, got hired up was to do that. And, uh, so, but then I guess one of the shows got canceled. The other one was like, did okay. And then got a second season, but whatever it was, that bubble kind of like contracted and it, uh, overall, I think it just became not financially feasible to run a web video department as expensive as the news network one was. I don't know if you remember those videos, but they were probably the most expensive comedy web videos like ever made. Like as like a series, they were like very high production value, very high. uh, Yeah. I mean, like it was, they like really went for it. And it was, I think because the ad dollars at the time were better than they like are now. That's like all tanked and stuff like that. But yeah, you could have your own video player and sell ads on it and you could make enough money to have those kinds of videos. And now when you were there, that's when I started doing like the more ambitious uh, stuff, right? It wasn't just like the straight, like, News parody. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, so I think, uh, are you referring to like Sex House and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So they, so I had been a staff writer 
for maybe like a year or so uh, when they kind of like Onion News Network kind of died for like a summer. And then uh, the but around that same time, the Onion got a YouTube grant of like a million dollars to do something else on wow. YouTube. Yeah, Well, a million dollars sounds like a lot, but it, like it's for it's nothing. <laughs> it's like actually nothing when you're trying to make like uh, good stuff. I mean, we blew it. We like blew half the budget on like the first like half of stuff that we did or the first quarter of stuff that we did. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so then they uh, got this money to make another round of just whole new types of things. And we knew we wanted to not do do news anymore we wanted to sort of expand it out so then so sam west and jeff Haggerty were in charge of that and they kind of uh yeah they picked a team and that's when we started working on that kind of stuff and that was for about a year that we got to write and produce those kinds of things which were yeah a little bit different what was the genesis of sex has because that's like yeah. Insane yeah. <laughs> show. Yeah. Uh, Sex House. Uh, it was uh, Chris Sartinsky who was a writer. It was his original pitch uh, to do it. And I remember uh, the, it was like one of the first ones, I think even before we kind of started the writing period in earnest when we were just kind of brainstorming. And there was just this writer's meeting, I remember, when we were meeting on ideas, just kind of talking about overall show possibilities. And we started riffing on Sex House. And in that first meeting, we just started like because we really gravitated to the idea that like you know this was like actually like institutional. I think in the description it was like just Sex House, a reality show parody where the contestants have to have sex and they realize very quickly that it's basically institutionalized rape and they start rejecting the producers. Uh, and then we the first meeting that we started riffing on it uh, and like. I feel like we just immediately started coming up with like the bananas and the flies and the frogs and stuff like that. And then once we started riffing on that stuff, I think we knew that we really wanted to explore it further. So then when we came back, we were all stoked that it had been Jeff and Sam and the produ- the producers were like, yeah, let's do this. I think something that's so interesting. I, I, I watched it recently just to show with some friends <laughs> and uh, I forgot like how slow it starts. Like, mm-hmm. The first episode is a pretty straight yeah. parody that some would say is like, isn't that like interesting? Like it's mm-hmm. like a very one minute thing. And then there's like a little bit of like hints pointed out. Yeah. Like each episode like keeps getting crazier. Is was that like uh, kind of a difficult thing to do? Um, in the since we wrote the whole thing at once, it was like we kind of knew that we, that was the pacing that we wanted for it. Um, but it was you know we had never written like a long narrative thing like that in the Onion style necessarily, so it was kind of like figuring out how to do that. But we knew we wanted just like everything we needed to, that we do, we needed it to to feel real. And so in like the arc of this, it needed to feel at the start as grounded as possible. We we put in like yeah, there's like little hints towards like later things, and when you watch it like another time, you like see more of those. I think, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, but then, but I think it was all also leading up to when Frank, uh, takes, uh, uh, the, uh, the teen virgin to, uh, or they get so drunk and then they, Aaron, when Frank and Aaron have sex that, that we wanted that to be like, like very jarring and, yeah. and like, <laughs> like dark. And so to have that contrast was just kind of like a pretty normal reality show. Do we, it's also just like. I was thinking about this before, like when doing satire, it's like, I like, especially like that kind of stuff. It's, I like showing the people that we're making fun of. I think it's important to show them that like, we see you, like we see what you're doing. We understand what you're doing. We're not making fun of you because we don't understand what we're doing. We're making fun of you because we understand what you're doing and we think you don't understand what you're doing. So by showing that we like can like mock it perfectly, that we can mimic the camera and we can mimic the tone as best we can within like with the budget that we have and show you that we get what you're doing. We're going to do a perfect copy of it and then we're going to show you 
what it really means that you're doing this. Or if it's just, we're using that as a vessel for some other like thing or whatever, or just to have fun or something like that. But I think that's important to show that we get what you're doing, um, before we start really laying into you. (laughs) Um, so you were uh, the head writer at that time, or just like? Uh... No, I was no, I was just a staff writer at the time. I came back as a head writer uh, last year when they started. They tried to restart doing video. They got uh, some a little bit of money when the Onion got bought up. I had left for a while, uh, gone to like Funny or Die and done some other stuff, and then they wanted to start up the video uh, department again when they got some money from Univision after they were like kind of like half purchased by them, uh, but uh, that only lasted like six months before they ran out of money again. Yeah. I think it was, it's very hard to do digital, uh, well, digital media in general right now, but like the digital comedy space is like very depressingly dying away along with all the rest of digital media because of like social media and Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah, and then like, uh, I mean, funny guys, you guys specifically, they used to have so many videos and so many staff writers and now like, I know like, a bunch of people like people I knew in LA they, LA, they just like lost their jobs yeah yeah it was really rough uh, They, ha- I mean they, we had two full staffs there was one in New York one in LA um, and then uh, the, I think the LA one I mean I don't know why these decisions happen or whatever but for the most part a lot of the people in LA were laid off and a lot of the folks in New York a lot of people in New York I know these are all like really good writers really good developers really good people uh, but they just like in order to survive I mean, I don't, you know, it's a, uh, it's a rough scene right now. Facebook is just kind of destroying the entire industry. <laughs> oh, you, you put the blame. I know Facebook's bad for a lot of reasons. You put the blame on Facebook for uh, digital comedy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, that. Uh, boy. Yeah. I, it, uh, uh, so the deal is basically that Facebook has like extracting all value from like all things. Uh, and we see that with news and stuff like that. Right. That, that's pretty apparent. Um, that like news, you know, print, the internet killed print journalism and then social media is killing like digital journalism basically. But comedy kind of like rides these waves also. Uh, and basically there's no way to make money. So Facebook doesn't give you money. They're basically doing that thing of like, Hey, Hey, we're not going to pay you, but it'll be exposure. That's what Facebook is doing writ large to all media companies. And the only recently have they started giving out like paltry little grants for like, we'll give you a million dollars if you do a bunch of live stuff or whatever. But but like it's not enough because there is no actual infrastructure there for you to make money. And because it's all on their platform, you can't sell ads against it at whatever rate you want to negotiate. So whereas before the onion and funny or die and all these places, they would, you know, get a sponsorship deal from like Jack links beef jerky or something and do pre-roll on some of their ads. And it was like a good amount of money because it wasn't quite TV, but like we had a big audience. Facebook sells all the ads on Facebook and it's all through like their programmatic bullshit that, you know, whatever they do, but also you need to fit everything into Facebook so that it works on Facebook's platform, which kind of robs you of a lot of the, the originality and things that you can do as like a creative person or a creative, um, uh, company or, or entity if you want to couch things the way you want to. So for example, the onion feed, uh, you know, we wanted to bring back doing some like onion digital studio style stuff, but we had this issue of like, but does that make that men's onion fish? Like, I don't know, like would it, because the onion Facebook page is like news and like wanting to like 
keep the veracity of like we're a fake news organization, but then also throwing in parodies of like other things. Does that work? But also we couldn't make our own page because we wouldn't have enough content. Like there, there's all these like really stupid, stupid level conversations that happen because we're all having to play by Facebook's rules. Uh, but the but the, at the end of the day, it's that Facebook is taking all the money and they are not giving any of that money to any of the people putting stuff on their site. They're basically everyone's boss. They're the editor right. for everybody right now. And they determine what is good or bad based on if it fits whatever their metrics are. So when something goes viral on Facebook, it's often unclear if it's actually because it's good or if it's because Facebook has deemed it that it's like your turn. That like we need to throw you a few bones before you're going to like revolt entirely. Uh, which I wish more. I think that at this point there's no solution other than like all media companies like organizing in some way and like rejecting this whole model because it's it's terrible and it's literally destroying our country and like world. So I don't know why we keep letting Facebook just do this shit. But yeah, it's it's really sad and fucked up uh, because there's. I mean, I don't know. Like, what's the path right now? for someone who's just trying to get into doing like comedy, like video comedy or something like that. What do you do? Where do you post your shit? I haven't, I feel like I haven't seen something super new and exciting online in like a long time. Uh, I mean, I'll, maybe I'm like just like somewhat out of the circles, but like, I don't know. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I understand. I guess. So you're saying it's kind of like the, the marketing of it is kind of what, like, cause you have to put it on Facebook and then Facebook kind of controls who sees it. Yeah. And then like you have to control like the Facebook, the brand of it. So for example, if I want you to see a video, even if you've subscribed to the onion, uh, and I want, you know, I've made a, we've put a bunch of money into this cool new video series or something and we put it up on our page. You're not going to see it unless we pay Facebook. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know how you, everything you see now says like sponsored on yeah. it, even though it's just normal content, it's not branded. It's not anything. That's because you have to give Facebook money for them to distribute it to the people who already want your Prod, product. It's sort of like it's like um, it's like if the paper boys like took over all newspapers. It's like I've already subscribed to the New York Times, but the paper boys decide, well, we're not going to let you have the New York Times unless you also pay us. Uh, even though they're just like the, they should be just this like um, benign distributor of things, but they're not. Right. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I did an episode with Scott Ackerman on this mm-hmm. podcast, and so I was like, well, maybe I'll try to like I'll pay for like Facebook and see what happens. And, like, I paid, and I forgot about it. And, like, a week later, I checked it, and it had, like, 100 likes. And mm-hmm. I, just, I was like, oh, check it. And I think there were literally, like, five people that I knew, like, were real, and, like, literally 95 bots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the other thing, is that Facebook just, like, it's in order for their business model to work of, like, you pay us, and we guarantee yeah. people will see it. They, that's why you see videos pop up on your feed that will not go away. Like, even if you, like, like them or, or whatever, or, or until you like them or engage with them, they just keep popping up. And that's because that company has dumped a lot of money in and Facebook needs to give them their return. But, yeah, it used to be and still is that Facebook uh, will basically show it to bots. You know, they have, like, a, a ton, like, funnier die. All these places have, like, if you bought if you bought subscribers or like bought advertising in like 2000, like 12 or something like that around 2012, 2014, you have a ton of followers from like the middle East who are all like, <laughs> like who the fuck knows? Yeah. Just like bots or, or, you know, click farms or whatever. Uh, but the, but the overall strategy ha- is to make it so that regular users behave as dependably as bots, right? They also don't want bots. They want it to, they want to, you know, advertisers to think like, no, this is real. So they prefer it being humans. 
Uh, and so that, you know, that like horrible feeling you feel when you're on Facebook, <laughs> like I see you use it for a long time and all that kind of stuff. My theory is that it, what that feeling is in a lot of ways is Facebook is, has been subtly over the years, just trying to change us, trying to like get us to like things on their platform and be used to things on their platform. Uh, so consistently to like be changed into engaging things the way that they want you to. So you can behave as consistently as a bot wow. so that they can sell things so that so that reliably, if I put money and if I give money to Facebook and they promise me that it'll get this amount of views, that they can back that up. So, but that only works if human beings are so cons as, as consistent as an algorithm. And because algorithms are things that only work based on things that have happened in the past, not things that you're going to do in the future, they need us to reliably be like how we have been, which is not a, a natural human tendency. And I think that's a big reason for a lot of the frustration and anger that people feel when they're on social media. And I think a, a big source of the frustration and anger that people are feeling as a whole in this country, I think that yeah. like, and worldwide, I, I am imagine no yeah i think facebook is a very pernicious very and i think they don't understand i think they I, my guess oh, is yeah. that they're fools i think they're just I, the analogy i like is that they're basically like lenny from of mice and men and they don't they're just this big oaf that has no idea that they're like just crushing over and over this delicate little thing that we had called the internet they're trying to become the internet right, right. facebook is like a basically like a centrally designed internet that they're trying to get us all to be on and the other social media you know has similar aspects to this but facebook is the one that's kind of like all of it in one so how would you uh combat that maybe just in like a, dig in a digital comedy <laughs> I mean, yeah i don't know i on my if you've uh, on my facebook page i post a lot of anti-facebook stuff which yeah. i think i guess i don't know i guess that's that's something posting anti-facebook things on facebook uh i don't know to be honest though i've spent the last year or two trying to work on things or figure out projects that can maybe do something like this. I've got, I've done a few things about it, but the real solution I think is that people need to start understanding what's going on. There's some good journalism about this. John Herman, who works at the New York times and who used to be at the all is really good on this. Max Reed, who is like a Gawker writer. Um, there are a lot of people who are writing really good shit, stuff about this. Um, but I think it isn't for one. I mean, it's not trickling into the mainstream that much. And sometimes I wonder if it's because, how you exactly yeah why would so facebook would i mean facebook art like you see facebook i remember facebook had you know when they had their like trending stories or whatever there once was one that was like workplace by facebook like one million people are talking about this which is absolutely not true no one has ever talked about workplace by facebook except right now in this conversation that we are having where i'm referencing it no one has ever mentioned it but they you know they fuck with it it's their thing they can do whatever the fuck they want uh and they sort of lie and they claim you know they hide behind their machine it's like if the paper boys were like oh no 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 we're you know uh just kidding you know you know we're we're not deciding who gets what paper it's we've replaced the paper boys with robots but it's clearly just like a cardboard robot costume over those paper boys and there is a human inside they're just like refusing to admit it that's like what facebook is doing all the time uh and it sucks because uh zuckerberg's gonna be president I yeah right yeah yeah i mean i would hope i well the one weird thing is like the ally my ally in this fight uh, is like the alt right as well. Right, <laughs> the yeah. alt right hates Facebook just as much. Breitbart uh, hates them just as much. Murdoch, uh, there was just an article about how Murdoch is the only one fighting back against this kind of shit. So, I mean, I don't know. Don't fuck with my money, you know what I mean? That's what the rich people <laughs> say. But yeah, I, I, I can't help but be really sad about this stuff because I, you know, really wanted digital comedy to be like a fucking growing thing. Like, especially being at The Onion at that time, it felt like, because you could say whatever you want. We could, you know, Funny or Die was like, 
filled with like dicks and like fun and like, you know, weird nudity and weird, you know, you could say whatever you wanted. Whereas television, it's cool and you get a little bit of a higher production value, but there's just shit you can't say. There's jokes that you cannot do. Uh, most of the time when I work on like a television project, like half of a lot of the work is like S and P and advertisers, like pushing back on stuff, even in cool places like adult swim, they all need to like, make sure that you're not pissing off important advertisers. So if you want to say what you want to say, it seems like the internet's the place for that or it was, but increasingly there's just no distribution for it. I was just, I wanted to listen to some of uh, your podcasts. So I was listening to the one that you just did with uh, Rutherford and yeah. And he was talking about, um, you know, putting stuff up on, uh, you know, wanting to kind of go the route of like, you know, Lonely Island or whatever. I remember that too of like, yeah, yeah, you just like put stuff on, you make a bunch of videos. If they're good, people find you and you get like a following and like it's sick and then, you know, whatever, you, you keep growing what you're doing. That I don't think that even happens anymore. I'm not sure if that, you know, Broad City was awesome. It was this great web series. I got a TV show. When was the last like awesome web series that became a TV show that kind of in that same way that wasn't like a, a website? Uh, it, well, I, I don't even know, period, if that has happened uh, since then. Maybe... Uh, like Insecure. Uh, yeah, maybe Insecure uh, was uh, as as well. But like it felt like that was going to be the new way of doing it, of getting comedy shows. And everybody was obsessed with making web series. Now, I don't know anybody who's working. It used to be a joke, like, will you work yeah. on my web series? I don't know anybody who's making yeah. web series really yeah. anymore. Also, it's weird because uh, also like Broad City, like those shows, that, like Workaholics and Broad City, like those web series weren't that popular, I feel like. Mm-hmm. They were just like kind of like what like critically acclaimed. Yeah. They got like people like Amy Poehler in the Broad City and stuff like that. So I don't know if there's like a real like big success story like Lonely Island where it's like literally they're like undeniably popular. Yeah. And as well as, yeah, yeah. Where it kind of became web series or whatever that were like really good, but like within your, you know, within the circle of like people who are in the comedy scene or whatever. Yeah. I just don't even know. And it's a lot of it's because these outlets like wanted you to do things the way that you wanted to, they wanted you to do. So like YouTube. So for example, sex house was like a massive hit. Yeah. Which was awesome, but YouTube never liked it, and YouTube never pr- promoted it because one, because it was called Sex House, they wanted us to change the name. They didn't like sex being in it, uh, and so they like kind of didn't promote it because of that. And then their algorithm shifted halfway into that project to to like. I don't know. It just like fucked over a lot of these like people they had given grants to because they wanted to focus on like personality driven videos, like just one person in front of the, the stuff that had been popular on YouTube. For some reason, they thought the onion should do that also, which is not what the onion wanted to do or any of these other channels. We wanted to make, you know, cool, ambitious shows. Uh, we didn't want to just do like whatever, you know, this modern version of like an MTV VJ kind of show, which is what like does well on YouTube because that appeals to children and YouTube like would refuse to admit that they were appealing to children. I remember they sent us around this little, this information that was like, uh, to make something successful. And it's like, we have like a a peak of viewership is around two, 2 PM, two, 3 PM when people are on their lunch break. It's like, no, no adults are not on their lunch break. Then that's when children get home from school, but they like refuse to admit that that is kind of the audience for what they're doing. These, all these places are so lame and, you know, they they all just want to control the internet, but with their lame ass sensibilities, rather than letting it be like the chaotic anarchic place that like it was meant to be. Right. It's yeah. It's just a shame. Yeah. So I guess there's, there's just like um, there's no good distribution model now. I guess. Not that I know of. If you know of one, please let me know. 
Uh, Vimeo. <laughs> Vimeo's great. Vimeo's been always been great. They've like had, you know, high quality videos. There's a bunch of great hidden gems all over Vimeo. But yeah, but they don't have the same distribution yeah, and you I mean, just can't get the same. Like almost all hidden gems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I had a, a teacher in LA, Eric Moneypenny, and he said like don't put your videos on Facebook because like all the like people just watch that, you don't get like any views like that you can use or anything, you don't get any money. Yeah, well the other thing is that uh the um uh, on uh, Facebook, it feels like there was a time when if you had a big viral video, other like blogs would cover it and things like that, and you felt like it was important. Like it felt like, oh, this is something for people to pay attention to. I've had videos, you know, get millions and millions of views on Facebook, but it feels like it doesn't matter at all because no one really talks about it. It just like kind of happened, and yeah, a lot of people said it, but there's no way to focus everybody or to be like, this is cool, this is important, this is something that should build. Facebook kind of makes it so that nothing is important, so that no one is important and then we all lash out because we all want to feel important and maybe that's because like we're using it wrong maybe because maybe it just should just be like keeping in touch with your friends that's what i think yeah make make facebook boring again yeah, <laughs> yeah. it shouldn't be just about like oh this is my content i have here mm-hmm. uh because i guess it wasn't really designed for that i mean now it's turned into like a whole other Thing. Well, yeah, because they wanted to monetize yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. I think it should. I mean, think it's. I think it's a wonderful repository of the names of people that I've met once or twice and photos of me and some of those people. I think it's wonderful for that. But I think trying anything else, I think it's just bad. And it's a so. And it's a shame because they could have been spending all this time making it great for that. You know, like it would be great in a hundred years if like Facebook is where all of our like sort of history and like the things that are meaningful to our family kind of were like curated and kept. But that that's like a long term plan that Facebook isn't thinking of what they're doing is like short term. No, like in, you know, whatever in like three years, Facebook is just going to look like YouTube. That's what they're trying to do. Like they're trying to reinvent YouTube right now with their watch page. They're just, it's just so dumb and fucking I, like, why are you doing this? Like there's, uh, it's like, you know, like in like the lesson of Jurassic park of like, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. I always thought that the reason why that movie like really sticks with our generation so much is one, because it's sick ass dinosaurs, but also because I think that theme is the like important theme for us to that resonates with us so hard we have so much power with these machines and things like that we can do anything but just because you can doesn't mean you should and we need to like think about that we just don't think things through if Zuckerberg just hasn't like thought this through yeah that's pathetic well on a totally different <laughs> note you were uh, you brought back sketch cramps <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about comedy again. Jesus. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, we got to cram tomorrow, man. Yeah, uh, a sketch cram. Yeah, it's been running for like five years now at UCB, which is cool here in New York. Uh, and that's a cool show. Uh, it's uh, it's a we make a sketch show in a day. Yeah, just to describe what it is. Uh, and we kind of get yeah writers and performers from like UCB or from the comedy community in general and throw them together for a day to make a show. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, what are like the kind of the benefits of doing a show one day rather than like the mod schedule yeah sure uh one yeah, there's you know uh you have i have the time for it <laughs> it's like mod is like a big time commitment there's a lot going on sketch cram i mean you know it's just a day and it's an intense day but it's just a day uh you can also people are more willing to 
kind of like take bigger risks because it's just a day. You know what I mean? It's not something that you can be precious about. So the sketches we do oftentimes are kind of like dumber or simpler or just things that people want to try more experimental feeling, which is cool. Uh, sometimes they suck because you know, whatever it didn't work out, but that's fine. Uh, also you, when we do bigger, like we, we've done movie cram a few times where we've made like a feature length film in a day. And that's just the, just incredible partially because, to do that kind of thing legit would cost tons, tons of money. Everybody is doing it for the love of doing it because it's just a day. You could get just so much more like passion from everybody and so much more um, work from them because they're doing it for the love of it than you would if you were doing it because it's like work. Uh, yeah. How, how do you like write that uh, for movie cream? Like yeah, uh, we so we meet at midnight the night before and pitch each other movie ideas, and then we uh, vote on the writers room. We vote on those ideas what we want to do most, and that's probably like one or two hours of just like talking through our favorite ones. And then once we settle on it, we start just beating it out. You know, we put a bunch of note cards up. We follow like save the cat structure. Which, I mean, you know, whatever, if you're into writing movies and stuff like that, I think it's a good thing to learn or whatever. And obviously, like, you know, you want to put your own spin on it or something. Not a movie cram, man. We just, like, we don't have time to do anything interesting <laughs> structurally. We're just like, thank God that there is the structure that if you do this, something resembling a movie will come out of it. So, like, we'll take it. Uh, so then we, like, throw the note cards up. We start, like, brainstorming on things. And then at a certain point, once we have, like, kind of the, all of the, like, major points figured out, people just go off and write scenes. And then we just kind of throw all those scenes together oftentimes characters aren't even named or things aren't even like figured out at all just like we leave it up to the writers and then on the second we do a read through and then on the second pass through we'll kind of make things a little bit more contiguous and then then we just do a, a table read or rather like a giant like room read with all the directors that have come like we'll have like 20 30 directors come who will listen to the read we'll sort of feel how that goes and then do one last rushed rewrite while like casting has happened is happening and then uh we'll have like 100 200 actors or whatever uh, and crew and all this kind of crazy shit. And then we just like pass out the scenes, the directors, right. Uh, the directors shoot their shit, come back. We make a little VLC playlist of the scenes and just like go in order. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I, I, we haven't done one for a little bit, uh, which sucks, but I, I keep promising that we'll do one. We keep promising to each other. We're going to do one in the spring. Uh, so hopefully I, we will. I know the, the, the movies end up like around like 90 minutes, mm-hmm. but how, how, like how many pages of the script? Um, yeah, probably around that, maybe a little like, like 70, 70, 80 pages, probably. Yeah. yeah something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, it's that's crazy. A, that's such an undertaking. It's awesome. Yeah. Have you, I mean, after you did the VLC thing, do you like edit it together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we'll just stitch it together. I think uh, we'll usually, the only thing we'll do is make it uh, to like fuck with it is make it so that the audio levels are consistent <laughs> because oh, okay. as you might imagine, we're doing that like live in the booth. The like tech guy is like changing the audio level with each segment <laughs> because everybody does it at different levels. So we'll smooth out the audio. But other than that, we just put it up how it was. Do, do the skills of like doing um, a sketch on one day, a movie on one day, do those translate uh, out of side of sketch cram to like real life stuff? I think so. For one, you just like the process that we use for those kinds of things is just the process that I like 
for writing in general for like doing any kind of project of like coming in with a whole bunch of pitches, talking through those pitches, honing it down to the ones that you like, uh, you know, working on working on those like, you know, notes, doing all that kind of stuff and feeling confident in that process. That's the same process I use for any other project that I work on. Um, which I think is, uh, you know, a good, and and it's good to like have trust in that process to know that it'll work. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, it's like a lot of like what translates is you'll just try new things that you never would have thought of. And then you know that those kind of work and you'll stick them somewhere else or you'll like make new connections or meet somebody or so many like projects or things have come out of doing cram because we like have put two people together who have never worked before and they like really liked working together and then they go and do something else. Um, so that's cool. Sketches and things from cram have ended up on all sorts of places. I think on Fallon a few times, there've been some like cram sketches before, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, uh, it's more, it's just like a little foundry, you know, it's just like a little like raw space of just like purely just like the, 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 for the fun of it, which I think is really what's beneficial. Remembering that this is all fun is really good too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you worked on a problematic. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, how would you get that job? Um, that was, uh, God, I, uh, they, I, I actually joined that not at the very beginning of it. Um, I think I was still at the onion when they were like putting that whole thing together, but, uh, they had an opening like a couple months in for a new writer and the head writer, RJ Freed knew me. Um, he's, he's great. Uh, and he, I think he just thought that I might be a good fit for what they needed for the room. So, um, I think it was like only a few weeks after the whole onion thing fell apart, the, the second round onion video thing. And I was out in LA uh, doing some stuff at Funny or Die, and I got like just like a, a, a request for like a submission for like some material, and then I went in and interviewed. And I think yeah, I think I was just like a good fit for what they wanted to do. Uh, that was the first time I'd met Moshe Kasher and uh, Alex Blag and the people running that show. And I think yeah, the, the the stuff they were interested in doing in the show was a lot of the stuff that I was kind of interested in in general, especially like sort of like tech like. F- 4chan, dark web, like weird corners of the internet, alt-right, like all these kinds of things that have kind of been bubbling up uh, around like Trump and those kinds of things are things that I've been really interested in and I think they were interested in too. Uh, What was that uh, submission like? For Problematic? Yeah. Uh, Well, I sort of, because I kind of came in midstream, I I just put together a few things that I had written, but, uh, and, or or videos or whatever. Although one of them was this piece that I had done for Funny or Die a couple years ago on like the dark web, just like a tour around the dark web. And I think they, they glommed onto that. They were like, Moshe was like, this is like exactly what we want the show to, to be. And then lo and behold, I get there that week. They're doing a test show. And the test show is going to, is about the dark web. And I basically just do the like on stage version of that article of like going and t- taking Moshe uh, and Nicole Byer on a tour of the dark web and like the markets and stuff like that. And that was like a test show and it went awesome. So then we did that episode as well, like on the show, I think it was like the third or fourth episode uh, where I took uh, yeah Hannibal Burris and Moshe on the dark web. Uh, and yeah, so that was a cool thing because it was just like directly something that I had worked on before that, uh, yeah, that was an exciting thing that we wanted to do for TV, which was cool. And, and this was your your first TV writing job? Yeah, somewhat. I had done some pilots, and I had done some Adult Swim like specials and stuff like that. Okay. But this is my first like yeah, staff writer job on like a cable show. Uh, uh, I also did Night of Too Many Stars a couple years oh, ago, right, but yeah. this was like my first like show. Yeah, was that like a, a crazy jump to like be working on this like weekly show? Kinda. I mean, it was. Uh, and it, I mean, more it was because the show itself was so interesting and different because it was like 
smashing together like kind of news and comedy stuff because we were doing all these like interviews and there's kind of like an informational aspect so, like all that was kind of new I for the first time wrote questions for guests and stuff like that in order to like direct conversations the way that we wanted to like get the information out that we wanted to and like points of view and explore things that was all kind of new and interesting and then yeah doing a weekly show is super cool uh, and very uh, you know this a lot of the skills from cram and stuff like that I think came into play too of just like you you know when you do a live show you're doing like a you know there's just so much going on and you need to like manage all these different parts and stuff like that so being able to like keep cool while things are falling apart is a skill that I think anybody working in television should have <laughs> uh, so you worked at the onion before now this is this uh, is political comedy something that you like want to focus on um, I like doing it I like uh, satire I also around the election I really you know all this kind of stuff I like exploring what's going on for me it's either like you're doing something I like doing something really weird and abstract or I like doing things that are very real very like just like the core of what's going on and talking about and exploring what's happening uh, I'm very interested in that empathy is something I'm very interested in and, and like exploring and I think important right now so yeah I like doing both I wouldn't mind um doing more narrative stuff too. I don't know. It's all kind of, who knows where your career takes you doing this kind of stuff. But I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of really good people on a lot of cool, fun projects. So, yeah. Uh, so you recently used this joke writing app. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Uh, (laughs) what was the, uh, genesis of that? Yeah. So this is probably the most like far afield and strange project that I've been working on. Uh, so if, when I was at Funny or Die, they had invested in like an app team uh, because it seemed like apps were a good idea like two or three years ago or whatever. <laughs> so they had spent a bunch of money in, on, for their, in their Silicon Valley office. They had one in – or uh, it was in San Mateo. Um, they had built up this whole app team and they wanted to come up with like apps for it. So they asked some of the writers. And I had a little bit of a tech comedy background because I had done these um, – uh, comedy hackathons, which are these things that Baratunde Thurston and Brian Janosch have run uh, for a little bit, which are super cool, where they just bring developers and comedians together to do a hackathon. Uh, oh, what was, was there any like interesting projects that came from that? Yeah, sure. I won the very first one with a project called Shout Roulette, and it was a it was like you picked something you wanted to argue about, like some like like abortion or something. You go onto the site, you want to argue about abortion, and then you pick which side you want to be on like pro or con and it would automatically match you up with the opposing side on a video chat so you could just start yelling at each other oh, right away what, what, what? <laughs> which is still an idea i like and something i would want to build again wow, that's like, that's insane. <laughs> yeah so that was cool so that was like the first thing that was a cool one i also made on a later one me and benjamin apple made a, a website like an, an insane person uh website generator i wonder if it's still up it was called truthforhumanity.com and it was you know have you you know like time cube have you seen that website like time you know when you come upon a website that's clearly made by a crazy person where it's just like ramblings and just like weird spiritual stuff and just like their theory for everything we wanted to make a website where you can put in what you wanted to be the like what like the truth was about it like you put you could put in you know like pepsi or something like that and it would automatically generate a crazy person website pulling like pepsi image related imagery and like putting them into sentences of conspiracy theory kind of language and shit like that so there's some cool ones but yeah that it's it was just a really fun project but it taught me how to like work with developers which was cool and then when funnier die wanted to they hit me up looking for like app ideas and they hit me up in particular they were like we want like a joke 
app. That was what they said. We wanted a joke app. They didn't know what that meant. They just wanted something that involved jokes and an app. And I thought about it and then kind of through some conversations came up with Pitch, with what became Pitch, which was sort of like a joke writing app. And it kind of used the process that little bit like the process that we developed at the onion and kind of like onion digital studios too of like anonymously pitching things like that's like kind of the onion headline process of like a bunch of headlines and then going through and like kind of voting on the ones that you like the most so those kind of are the ones that you talk about uh and so we kind of took that and i thought that that could be maybe a fun project for like not just a writer's room of people but like maybe like hundreds of people could kind of do that together and it would might be fun uh, and so we built like a little prototype of it and invited some like funnier die contributors into it to do it. And it turned out it was fun. And also the stuff that we were making was really funny and good. So we built in a mechanism where we could buy the best stuff from it and put it on funnier die so that people were getting paid for the stuff that they were doing. So that kind of has just been growing and growing. Uh, and we've been trying to like manage how it grows because it's like a delicate and weird thing. But at this point there's, I think like 2000 people in there it's invite only or wow. like re referral only. Um, to kind of keep it from getting out of hand. But yeah, but we buy jokes every day from it for it to make into like social content or um, videos or whatever. And we're trying to like invite other people in there in order to make some semblance of a business model so we can keep the whole project going. Um, so we're trying to like go out to like other comedy companies and publishers and things like that to like use it similarly to kind of like wrangle freelancers. Mm -hmm. The overall goal, the biggest goal, the thing that I would love the most is that it would it allows like just comedians or whoever to make their own project and use pitch to kind of like help put that together. Like if you wanted to make your own satire site that you could use pitch to kind of find a base of writers to have like a little submission process and using the pitch process helps you get like good work uh, because you're kind of all like collaborating and right. voting on like pitches anonymously together. Uh, but then the hope is that once you get big enough that you're like monetizing whatever you're doing, uh, that we're there as kind of like an accounting system. Basically it's just kind of like a big accounting system where you can, if you want to pay your writers, which you should do, then you talk to us and we, you basically can just use our accounting system to do that where you just, we just charge you for the price of the jokes or whatever. And if you're large enough, like a little subscription to use the service and then we automatically pay out the people that are doing it. This is all assuming that there is a monetizable world. <laughs> there, there is a digital comedy world that is monetizable, which right now we're in, kind of in like the dark ages of that. So uh, I don't know. Hopefully we'll come out of it and there'll be, <laughs> there'll be projects that people can make money on online in the future that uh, Pitch can help them with. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the anonymity. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you do that so that people can kind of write freely? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, uh, it, it, when obviously like with anonymity comes like a lot of like baggage because who knows, you know what, but in general, if you have a good community of people, uh, what it does is it kind of protects you so that the, the worst feeling in the world to me is when I pitch an idea that like I, I don't love or something like whatever. Cause like when you're pitching ideas out, whatever at a show or whatever, you know, you're just like going and who knows what's good or what's not good. And if somebody who whatever with, if an idea I don't like gets picked and run with just for whatever reason, because like they like me or because I said it like loud enough or some, or who knows why, then having to commit to a bad idea sucks. Uh, so this keeps it so that only your best stuff is the stuff that people sort of see your name attached to. Uh, and you can kind of feel free to still explore the like bad sides and like the riskier sides of what your, your, your brain, uh, where often the best stuff comes from, but also sometimes the worst stuff comes from. So, uh, that kind of like helps you exactly pitch, uh, pitch safely. 
I, I think something that I find fascinating um, is that I think everyone, you know, does... I mean, I feel like most people I know in comedy do improv and sketch only because I do improv and sketch, but I feel like there's less... There's not really uh, anyone, like, learning joke writing that well. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is, like, a cool place to, to like, kind of hone that skill without just, like, f- flooding Twitter with a bunch of bad jokes. Yeah, exactly. And also Twitter, just like Facebook and YouTube or whatever, it is a platform. So the things that do well on Twitter are the things that do well on Twitter, that are, like, meant to do well on Twitter, which aren't necessarily... I mean, definitely they're very funny people writing very funny things on Twitter, but also they're not necessarily all the best kinds of jokes are like true comedy writing jokes. Uh, whereas with pitch, it is just like specifically about writing really good jokes for an audience of other comedians. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I hope there's some sort of value. I, I, that's one of the, the, we kind of were like making it as like the best place for a, a comedy writer to kind of get their start, a place where you can like learn how to write jokes that are like, you know, in the style that a comedy writer would write and uh, with the kind of the rigor of that. And then maybe you can make your first 10 bucks like selling a joke to funnier die. That was kind of like the, the dream of it that people could kind of get their start there without exactly having to flood Twitter or just get, get lost in the anonymity of Twitter. It's also like Twitter and all these places are all about self-promotion you know, that kind of garbage. And like, I find at least myself and I think other comedy writers are very adverse to self-promotion. You want like to be known for your work, not for how like loudly you can shout, look at my work. So with pitch, you're only acknowledged if you wrote a good joke and that's your, your name only pops up if you get three or more stars on there. So, uh, yeah, you kind of get, and there's like a little leaderboard and stuff like that. So you can see who's writing good shit. I've, uh, I've, I've had one joke that got three stars Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I've done like 15. Cool, so cool, cool. Just, 15? All right. That's good. Just starting out, yeah. Uh, it was, it was. Um, I think it was How Do You Know You, you Had Good Sex or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I wrote, come gishes out of your nose. <laughs> so that's my, uh, that's the one joke I got on there. And as your listeners can tell, that was a good joke, an <laughs> yeah. officially good joke, yeah. because it got three stars, quality material, worth saying on a podcast. Excellent, excellent. Uh, with, with that, <laughs> voting system you also uh you read the other jokes you read all the jokes when you're when you're you're paying out i guess when we are yeah yeah our the whoever's editing it yeah they do we uh, if it's like a ton of stuff like we generally trust the the process of voting and stuff like that it's not perfect insofar as like definitely the top voted pitch is the best joke in there because especially in a topic with a ton of jokes like not everything gets a ton of eyes on it uh not or gets all the eyes on it but it and but that's okay Okay, because there's kind of a fudge factor built in where like three star joke probably as good as a four star joke, you know, five, you know, within like a range. And Tim, the editor, will he's very uh, he he I think he reads the zeros too. I think he even goes into the zeros. But like yeah, we will read uh, at least down to the the twos and ones because there's often good stuff in there too that just like didn't get enough eyes on. But the whole point is just to just separate the wheat from the chaff enough so you don't have to go through six hundred jokes. You only right. need to go through whatever one hundred jokes. Do you think people um, vote enough? Like, I, I sometimes, like, if I, like, I did my joke, and like, ah, I'm not going to vote on this one, then go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that we think about a lot, and it's, uh, we, there's a lot of stuff that we're working on in the app, and this is something that we have a lot of, like, ideas for and things we want to do, but... I think in general, people don't vote enough, but, or people do vote just enough for it to work. I think, right. like, that's what we've found. Obviously, we wish more people voted more. 
But also, like, I use the app, too. And, yeah, I don't read through every single joke all the time. I mean, if it's like a – but it, what, the best strategy, I think, that we say is, like, if you go in and you're going to pitch something, read the, like, last, like, 20, 30 jokes. It won't take you that long. And if everyone does that, then it kind of – it works out. Like, roughly everything will kind of be seen by enough eyes that if there are good things in that mix, that those will rise to the top. Um, so, it, again, again, because it's also – we don't want it to be – it's not like Twitter or uh, or Instagram or something where like or, or Reddit even where like the best stuff gets a bajillion stars and like the stuff below it doesn't get that much. That's not how pitch is meant to work. You're not meant to just like cash in a bajillion and get a ton of stars on like one joke. It's meant to just be a more sober like work kind of like calm environment where like good stuff gets enough votes that you will see it and bad stuff you don't have to see. So it's sort of like that. Uh, when's the best time and a topic to do Ooh, and now we're talking I, strategy really, here we go yeah, here I really we go thought about that and I don't know <laughs> um, I to be totally honest with you I don't know either man yeah. uh, I think that I do think early I mean if we're talking about pain topics we're talking is that what we're talking because I think like regular topics that just people are posting good ones like you know there's not there's usually enough there where people will kind of look through everything and vote on them for the most part other than like if you come in like don't pitch anything in the last hour like the last right. hour is for voting um uh, and just to kind of, uh, you know, be there, but the, uh, I think pitching early is always good. Um, and then I think that pitching on a big, like sponsored topic, actually pitching later, not at the end, but pitching like once the original momentum of everything has like slowed down is also pretty good. There is a thing that, uh, jokes fade away after starting at like 90 minutes. If they haven't gotten a vote, uh, there's like a, a mechanism where like certain, a certain only a certain percentage of users on pitch will see jokes that don't have any votes. So in big topics, that helps helps people vote because it means like really bad stuff is just not there anymore. So uh, you have about ninety minutes on there to get a to get a vote. And if oh, you don't, yeah. yeah, that or I mean again ninety to ninety minutes to three hours roughly to get a vote in order for it to stick around long enough to get more votes. So uh, yeah, so plan for that. That mechanism does turn off in the middle of the night. So it's I, I, that's what I always test. I'm always like worried that like on off peak hours pitch isn't working so whenever i pitch it's usually i try to pitch in like off peak hours in order to make sure things work and sure enough i if i have a good joke it gets enough votes if i have bad jokes they don't get you know so we test pitch a lot and for the most part it works and obviously there are edge cases where like good jokes are getting lost in the shuffle but like the fact of the matter is like good jokes rise good jokes rise up man good jokes good jokes you can't keep a good joke down uh you have these like teams now Mm mm-hmm uh, what are the purpose of, of these uh, teams? Yeah, there's a couple different purposes for them. One is that just because there's so many people on pitch now, and it's not even that big of a community, but like pitch isn't meant to handle like tens of thousands of people. Uh, but we think we can handle a few more if people start kind of like self, uh, you know, self segregating a little bit into different teams based on like interests and based on things. So like there's a sports team right now. Um, that not everybody is into sports, but if you're into sports, there's this great sports team where you can pitch sports stuff. And right now that team is like, I think just, it might even be like literally right now as we're talking this, the Rich Eisen show was like a client that we just got, like a cool, like a cool little partnership with Funnier and I were there. They're going to be reading like the top five pitches from like this sports topic from yesterday. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're gonna be reading those pitches live on air, uh, which is cool. Rich has been super supportive. He was like on it last night, like just I was like trying to go to bed because they're on like West Coast time, and he was like because the, the topic had closed, and he was going through the jokes, and he was like, "Holy shit, this is awesome!" Like look at all these great jokes. I'm like, yeah, sick. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, but he's been super. Rich. He's like a comedy dude, so he's uh, been real into it, which is cool. Uh, and yeah, so uh, but yeah, but we hope kind of by interest or maybe by tone, like uh, this guy timothy pizza has an awesome sci-fi team uh and hopefully like one those teams maybe could become something like i'd love it if like the sci-fi team kind of became and and tim is kind of doing this a little bit of like making it its own little brand and its own little twitter feed or its own little thing and hope i would hope maybe like its own little site or something like that that like a little project so teams could become that but it's also the the down the line thing i guess I'll, i can tell that i don't think i've spoken publicly about this on pitch but the plan is that Hopefully that enough people are in enough teams that we can set up a system where the kind of your main, the main page, if the top topic in every team, if it's a public team, that topic is on the main page, no matter what. So you can okay. see what is going on in the teams if you're interested in it and you can pitch on those, but it just would limit the number of topics on the main page because sometimes there's, it kind of becomes overwhelming how many they are. So that's one thing. The other purpose of teams is it allows us to make paying teams and other like smaller subsections of like UCB just made one, like of a smaller paying team of like contributors and people. A lot of the teams are like, if you've gotten a certain number of editor picks, then you'll be automatically added to a team. So like the funnier, the UCB one, I think if you had five or more editor picks, you'd sold five or more jokes to funny or die or some other entity you were automatically added to that so you're kind of there's like a layer of vetting so if you use pitch enough and if you get good at it we want to kind of like have ways where you can kind of like get more and more opportunities uh and then that means so that when ucb puts up a topic they don't get flooded with just like everybody so funny or die will always be flooded happy to be flooded with everybody that's the promise but the other like publishers and stuff that use it for whatever projects uh would maybe have like smaller groups so that they're a little more manageable uh, how are you going to manage more people coming to the app? Like, how, are you, how are you going to expand it by keep but still keep it like pretty good quality? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the teams is one thing. Hopefully, just like as it grows, the hope is that once you know pitch isn't for everybody you know even if you want to be a comedy writer it might not be your style of comedy writing even if you want to you know whatever it's not but the people that pitches for i think find it and really love it uh and i think that sort of it's about letting in enough people i only let in like 20 people a day basically and we have like a really long wait list at this point um like a couple hundred people uh and so i try to let in just 20 a day so that of those 20 whatever percentage of them are like gonna really find pitch and love it they'll glom onto it and become great contributing members of the community people who aren't or who are bad or whatever they'll pitch some jokes they'll be like oh i'm not good at this or oh this isn't for me or oh whatever oh i have a i have a job <laughs> like whatever productive things i need to do with my life and i don't have time uh for this or whatever uh that they'll kind of drop away or you know but also like pitch i want people to have like a healthy relationship with the app i don't want this to be facebook i don't want this to be like a dopamine delivery system that just like traps you uh and so to me i encourage people to have a healthy relationship with pitch where it's okay to like peace out for a little bit or not do it all the time and come back when you want to joke when you want to pitch jokes and feel you know hone those chops so uh we talked a lot about tech and comedy mm -hmm. what do you think the future is of tech and comedy uh, I don't know. I guess VR, right? Is that what's going on? Memes, man. Memes. Uh, I, I, I was at South by Southwest like two years ago. 
I went to like the VR section and it sucked. It's bad. Really? What were they doing? It just like they're just like there's like skiing and stuff, but it just it doesn't look <laughs> real at all. And it also it is like the most boring thing. Like yeah, you're skiing here or you're skydiving. It's mm-hmm. like yeah, I know, but I'm not actually doing like it's. I it's, I think the moment when they stop like making stuff for like weird like like adventure stuff and just making like interesting content. Yeah. It's going to be cool. I know Funnier Die has done a little bit with that. Yeah, Funnier Die has done a little bit of VR stuff. Everybody's experimenting with it a little bit. I think once it gets into the hands of like once the technology the barrier of like tech is low enough that like people who just want to fuck around with it can like do that easily enough, I think that will like start helping that. I, to me, I think the coolest potential in in some one of the things that I wonder if it will work uh, really well on VR is improv because there is like a more like immediacy and more of like a feeling of like being in a space than you get with like improv notoriously doesn't work on video. Um, but I wonder if there are ways to make it work on VR because it feels more intimate and because it feels more, yeah, it feels almost more like a live experience. Um, like the cool stuff that I've seen on VR, like narratively, they feel like little plays more than they feel like a movie or something like that, which I think is really cool and I think could be an interesting direction. So I would be excited to kind of explore that um, either uh, and probably at the outset, it would be more like animated or whatever, like CGI kind of like, right. you know, whatever, like Zuckerberg and Puerto Rico kind of stuff where you're like, a, <laughs> yeah. you know, a CGI uh, person. Yeah. And uh, but like maybe doing improv and stuff like that. I think that could be really exciting. I also like I, I'm a, uh, the, the first like just cool like VR club. You know, I don't know what that even means, but it's just like a club you go into. and oh, There's like weird stuff going on, like cool rooms. Did you ever go on the palace chat? This is a, me and a friend of mine, Sophie, is the only who was a developer at Funnier Night. Is the only other person who I've ever met who knew about this. It was like a chat type of uh, like website in like I think probably the like late '90s or whatever, like the height of like AIM and all that kind of stuff. But the palace, it was like a visual chat where you everyone had their own little avatar, but you were in like there was like a castle or there was like a dungeon or there was like a beach or something like that as like a background, and you had a little avatar that you kind of could. Ju- it was two dimensional. I mean, it was like janky, but you kind of had speech bubbles instead of just like uh, whatever. Oh, okay. But it was kind of like location based, and then you could find like a private room where you could you know do whatever you needed to do in a private room with somebody else. Uh, but uh, uh, but I've always imagined like having that come back in VR would be cool or just like a space where you can meet people in like a cool club. Although it would probably devolve into just like horrific like abuse and stuff like that. So yeah. we don't deserve the toys that we make. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to wrap up um, every episode. Uh, I wrap, we wrap up with giving uh, the guest kids their thoughts on something I wrote. Oh, okay. And it's... Uh, uh, cum gushes out of your nose. No, this is, uh, <laughs> this is a sketch pitch. And this is not much better than cum gushes out of your nose, but um, this is this is real simple. Uh, wet nightmare on Elm Street. Wet nightmare. On, so <laughs> trailer parody where uh, Freddy Krueger is just trying to. Uh, make you uh, make you come. Oh, he's trying to make you come. Yeah. yeah, it's not just you're like seeing Freddy or running from Freddy Krueger, but you wake up and you do. Come. It's he's he's actively yeah. like wanting to make. I want to make you come like yeah, that. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that could work. I think that uh, so this is like a seductive Freddy Krueger. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is he actively still being scary, or is he also is he just seductive? I think he looks the same, so mm-hmm. kind of scary, but he's uh, he's acting seductive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that. Works. I think that's funny. Yeah. I think that's the way to go too. I think that's the 
the angle on it because that's you know that there's like an innate like funny visual there to freddy krueger handsome freddy krueger trying to make you get off uh yeah, and then people just wake up with like wet spots, I guess. Yeah. Like, does it work? Does it? He yeah. he success? Does he? He nails. <laughs> he nails it every yeah. time. He's really good at it. That's great. Uh, yeah, sure. I think that does it heighten anywhere. <laughs> just, I haven't really thought it through. Much. I've, I wish I could help more. I've never actually seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I so haven't I, either. <laughs> I just saw it. it was playing in a theater. And I was like, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I mean it. I mean it checks all the boxes of how to make a good comedy premise of finding something that exists and adding something funny to the name of it so that feels so lame doing that but a lot of good it, stuff happens <laughs> well like you want it like the best stuff in comedy right is just committing to the dumbest thing yeah. and like that's the dumbest thing you can do is just like slightly change the yeah. name of something so i think you kind of can't help it but then if you really pull it off if you really commit to what that dumb thing is like, oh fucking work man yeah. that's a fucking multi-million dollar <laughs> idea right there i can't believe you're just throwing it around on a podcast like this dude congrats on that idea thanks <laughs> uh all right thanks for coming out you anything you want to plug uh i guess pitch man pitch is cool pitch is rolling pitch is sick uh i'm about to do when is this coming out uh not sure but soon ish cool i'm a, i think it's funnier die did this is doing this thing with ifc where we're like taking over various nights of their programming and my character uh-huh. I do this character at funnier die called yelling man which is basically my Facebook rant that I gave you earlier, yeah. except at a higher volume uh, and about different topics. But uh, I'm doing I'm doing an IFC takeover as Yelling Man in a couple weeks. I'm not even sure quite when, maybe in two weeks or something like that. But this comes out before then or something like that. Check that out. I guess I don't know. There's some cool. There's some weird ones. There's some fun ones uh, that we made. I really stick it to capitalism. I, oh yeah, I know, I know. Who would have who would have thought? Uh, but yeah, but that's cool. Nancy Pelosi's gonna get angry. <laughs> hey, I welcome it, Miss <laughs> Pelosi, Miss Pelosi. All right, thanks, Matt. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week! This has been a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now!